Well, so glad you are here with us this morning. We're in the book of Isaiah, as we have been for some time. And this morning, as we begin, we're going to be looking at Isaiah 52, verses, uh, beginning in verse 13. Uh, but we're going to be here and through ver- uh, chapter 53 for probably a couple of weeks. And we are looking at the fourth and final servant song in the book of Isaiah. And it's going to take us a little bit of time to work through that together. But if you have found that, Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13, I want you to, this is assuming you have a print Bible, okay? Uh, just keep your finger there. But I, I, I want to begin this morning actually by looking at a text that we're in Romans. And it's Romans 16, verses 25 through 27. We're going to come right back to our text there in Isaiah. But I just want to preface what we're about to study together with this text out of Romans. All right, this is Romans 16, beginning in verse 25. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to bring your attention to what Paul is saying here. The revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. Do you see that? There was something that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed through the prophetic writings. Do you see that? Through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all nations. The prophetic writings. To Paul, who were the prophets? The prophets of the Old Testament scriptures. It's what he is referencing. And as we have learned, does Paul quote from the book of Isaiah pretty often? Yes, he does. Paul was very familiar with the book of Isaiah, and he understood that what was being said there, along with the other prophets, was disclosing, revealing this mystery. But that mystery was kept secret for long ages. Aren't you thankful to know this great mystery that has now been revealed to us. This text that we're about to look at is, I I think, in my opinion, come across the, the, the climax of all of what Isaiah has been telling us so far. As I've been telling you, the first part of the book of Isaiah is pretty gloomy. Uh, a lot of hard, harsh messages to the people. But then once we got to chapter 40, things turned around for us. And all of a sudden, we start to hear these over and over on repeat. Not that we have been left without hope, but we all of a sudden start to hear more hope and eager expectation for all that God will do beginning back in chapter 40. And so when Paul, or when Paul, when Isaiah gets here over to chapter 52 and chapter 53, the fourth of the four servant songs, uh, we start to hear this come through. And so 
Uh, we're going to take our time through this text, as I said, and today we're just going to be looking at three verses of it. And these three verses really set us up for all that is to be said. So as we begin looking at this text, I, I want to tell you up front, we're going to be digging into this great mystery and I think we're going to understand why this was so mysterious to the people because it's somewhat cryptic and it's, it's using these terms and people speaking in scenes that we think, what is, what is going on here? By the way, when you've read your Bible, specifically the Old Testament, specifically the obscure Old Testament references, don't you often find yourself uh, thinking, what am I reading here? What this is, this is hard for me to cope with. It's hard for me to understand this scene that's being painted for me in Scripture. Um, this, is, this is one of them. And taking all that we have learned from Isaiah up to this point, uh, it's pretty amazing to see what is exactly being said here about this great servant. <clears throat> so you're going to have to excuse me for a second because I am really overheated and I'm, I'm realizing that. You guys have made it too hot in this room, so I'm going to take my jacket off. So just bear with me for a second. Uh, otherwise, I think my mind isn't going to be with us for, for the rest of the time. So. Okay. <clears throat> excuse me for doing that. All right. So let's look at our text, and let's see all that God has in store for us here with just these few verses. All right, let's look at it. Verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Okay, we're just going to stop right there. That's enough for us so far. Uh, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So a couple of questions that we have. First is, who is the speaker? That is the person saying my. And second, who is the servant, the he that he's referencing? Because if you just look back at chapter 52, verse 12, um, and all that's being said of here, it seems as though we have a different person speaking, a different perspective being brought. And uh, you're right. And so our job is to really start to understand what's being said and if we do understand it properly, we're going to walk away with something very, very powerful and impactful to us and at the very heart of the gospel itself. So that's, that's what's at stake here in this text, the heart of the gospel itself. So we've been looking at the four servant songs, right? The four servant songs. And uh, there they are, 42, 1 through 9, 49, 1 through 13, 50, 1 through 11, and then, of course, the, the one that we're on today. Who is speaking in these other three Servant Psalms. That's one of the questions that we're going to ask, okay? Bear with me till we get there because even though we have to talk about what is potentially uh, what I might call nuanced, if we don't understand s- the people speaking here in these nuanced terms, the way that we actually interpret this is very, very, very different. And so I want to say to you up front, I'm going to argue my case to you this morning. That's what I have to do. To be faithful to this text, I have to argue my case for who is speaking, who is being spoken about, and what implications it has for the audience, the people listening, because it is is far-reaching. This is a very significant text in our Old Testament scriptures. 
it's very important for us to understand. And if we get this wrong, I'm just going to tell you here in just a little bit, I'm going to give you a quote from someone who gets it wrong, and you're going to see how bad this can go for us. Okay, so who is speaking in Isaiah 42? Um, well, let me just read verse 1. I think I have it on the screen, so you don't have to flip so much. Uh, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights, I put my spirit upon him. He'll bring forth justice to the nations. And then over in verse 6, it says, I am the Lord, and because it, it continues on. So who's speaking right here in the first servant psalm? That is God himself, Yahweh. He is speaking to the people, okay? And it's his servant. If we look at the next one, Isaiah 49, this is the second servant psalm, verses 1 through 13. Let me just read verse 5. And it says, and now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant. We can just even just stop right there, can't we? Because who's speaking? The Lord says to his servant. So this is the Lord and his servant. You'll follow me so far? If you don't follow me and you get off this track, we're going to have problems. So go with me with my argumentation here. Okay? And then the third servant psalm, chapter 50, beginning in verse 1 Uh, I'm going to read just verse 10, and it says, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Okay? So, what is the situation that we find ourselves in here? The fourth servant psalm, and when it says, Behold my servant, uh, it makes perfect sense within the text to say that this is God speaking. This is his servant. This is consistent with what we've found so far. You all with me on that? Yeah? Yeah? This is God, and this is speaking of his servant. Okay, let's move on. So the speaker, my, this is God, this is Yahweh himself. First of all, is that kind of already significant to know, just getting into the text, who's talking, whose servant is this? It's important to know who's talking. And then it says, he, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Okay, so there's another figure, which is the servant. He will act wisely. Do you see that? He will have understanding and success. That's what the word means. He will act wisely. He will have understanding. He will have success. So the question for us is this. When we have read so far in the book of Isaiah, collectively, we have read about a couple of servants. One of the servants that's depicted, which is most often depicted, does not sound like this servant because this servant acts wisely. But we have another servant that does not act wisely. And so what we need to do then is compare the unwise and unsuccessful servant to the wise and successful servant that we're reading about here. Why do we need to do that? Because you could see this as the unwise, unsuccessful servant having a change of heart and a change of mind. And now all of a sudden they're starting to be wise and successful. Or it could be another servant altogether. Do you see how you could understand that two different ways? So... Who is being spoken of? If we get this wrong, I'm telling you, this has vast implications to our theology and our understanding of the gospel, which is something that we want to get right. So, what is being said? He will act wisely. He will have understanding. But who is the unwise and unsuccessful servant we've read so much about? For example, Isaiah 41.8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, offspring of Abraham, my friend... Now, for those of you who have been here, who have been keeping track with all that we have said so far about this people, this servant, is Israel, as depicted in Isaiah, a wise and successful servant. 
No, absolutely not. So then, has Israel changed? And now God is speaking to Israel because they've, they've now all of a sudden, my, behold, my servant Israel is now wise and successful. Good job. Or is he saying there is another figure here that I'm speaking of? No longer am I talking about Israel, but now I'm talking about another figure. Because if that is the case, which is what we're arguing, then again, this has some pretty important implications. I'm just going to read a text here from Isaiah 42, and it says, beginning in verse 18, Hear you deaf and look you blind that you might see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind but my dedicated one? Or as the servant of the Lord? Okay, if you continue on down that text, it says uh, that the Lord God sent certain things on them that they might be wise and understand. And it says, He's, he poured out on him the heat of his anger. That is, God poured out on his servant the heat of his anger, the might of battle, and it set him on fire all around, but he still did not understand. It burned him up, but he still did not take it to heart. This is the depiction of the unwise, unfaithful, unsuccessful servant Israel. That is how they are depicted. That is why they are about to be led into Babylonian captivity. Everybody with me? Yes? Some summary ideas here, right? But if we don't bring those with us, as, the, uh, as Isaiah would have expected to bring with you up until this point, right? Just like take my sermon for today. Bring all that we have said so far up here, okay? You would do that in context. So what about this wise and successful servant? This is very interesting. Look at it with me. The wise and successful servant Chapter 42, verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Does that sound like Israel? No. Or Isaiah 49, 6. These are both from servant psalms. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant and rise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel? So it's not Israel. The servant is actually doing something for the people of Israel. So two different servants, okay? You have the unwise, unsuccessful servant Israel. They need help. They need to be delivered. And then over here, you have another servant being depicted who is wise and successful and has the spirit of the Lord upon him, and he's going to do great things. This is the servant that's being spoken of. How do we know that? Look even further. The servant will be high and lifted up and exalted. Do you see that in your text for this morning? He will be high and lifted up and exalted. Here's what's important about that. Who is the one who is high and lifted up and exalted? Not to Isaiah's readers. They don't know that. Who are you talking about? Jesus. Actually, the name would have been... Uh, never mind. Never mind. We're, uh, no rabbit trails. Don't have time for them. Isaiah 6. Okay? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated, seated upon a throne, and he was high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled, the, robe filled the temple. So who's the one who's high and lifted up? There. That's God himself, right? Yahweh. That's how they understood it. Isaiah 33.10. I will arise, says the Lord. That is Yahweh. Now I will lift up myself and I will be exalted. Who's that? Pretty clear, right? Here's another one. Isaiah 57.15. This is one we haven't gotten to yet. For thus does the Lord who is high and lifted up who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and 
also with him as one of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. But here we have an individual who will be high and lifted up and exalted, a description that has only been given to who? To God himself. Do you see that? So this doesn't sound like an individual, does it? This doesn't sound like just a person. This sounds like something more. Now, it's easy for all, for all of you to say, listen, I know all of what you're saying. I already know this is Jesus. Can we just move on? Isaiah's readers would not have understood that. Right? That is why this great mystery this wondrous mystery that we sing of has become clear to us, but it was not clear to them. Do you see that? It's very important for us to feel the text, to be in the world of the text, and so we must transport ourselves back to the text and read it as much as possible the way the original readers would have understood it because then we start to feel the heart of what's being said. So, Let's try as much as we can to see what the text is saying without so much superimposing Jesus on it immediately without even thinking about it, okay? That's what we must do because this is actually some criticism that has come upon Christians is that you're just taking the Old Testament and you're reading Jesus into it everywhere where he was not meant to be. But I am arguing with you this morning that it could be none other than Jesus, because who is the only other one who can be high and lifted up? A man and yet one who is high. A man and yet one who is exalted. Who could that be? A man, does God delight in any man? No. Isaiah 2.12. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty and all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Oh, but there's going to be a servant who is high and lifted up. God doesn't like that. God doesn't like the high and lifted up. He's going to bring all of them low one day. Do you see the, the weird contrast here? And so God's going to take this servant. He's going to make him high and lifted up, which means it can't be a man. Because God's going to take all men, all those who are proud and high and lifted up, and he's going to bring them down. So that tells us that this servant is not a man. It is God. Do you see it? The same thing as in Isaiah 2.17. The haughtiness of man shall be humbled, the lowly pride of men shall be brought low, and it will be the Lord alone who is exalted in that day. So could God possibly be pleased with another being exalted if it's not him? No. So already this is very interesting that there's going to be a servant that God is going to raise up to a status that only God himself has. I'm unbelievable. See, this is a good text, isn't it? It's worthy of our devotion and our analysis and our contemplation. We should look at it to see all that it has for us. So this servant, he is wise, he is understanding, he is high, he is lifted. Okay. What, again, we have to work at is there's another character introduced, it seems, because as they were astonished at you, who's the you now? We have Jesus, or we have God, and then we have the servant, who's being spoken of as he, and then we have you. Now, who's the you? I don't know. Who's the you he's talking about? There's another character, but it's really not because um, it's actually very common and confusing, common and confusing, that prophetic text, especially Isaiah, will kind of go in and out of particular scenes. 
So at one moment, when it's the I, me, all of a sudden, it's the you or the him. And then it's going to come back to the other scene. It's almost like we're watching the same thing, or we have multiple cameras, let's say, right? And then we change perspective to this camera, so we see it this way, but then we have this perspective. We're switching back and forth in perspectives, and that's why the, the pronouns change. Does that make sense? Tell me if it doesn't. So the pronouns change because of perspective. So what we see here, as has been common, as actually happened in another servant song, is that we have this particular viewpoint, and we're saying this servant, him, and then all of a sudden the, ang the angle changes, and now we're looking at the servant, and God is talking to the servant himself. Okay? And he says, so you. Many were astonished at you. And then as quick as we came, we, now we're back to the other perspective. Because now it's saying uh, his appearance was so marred and beyond human semblance and his form was beyond that of the children of mankind. God is still the one speaking. But then we have something else. So shall he sprinkle many nations... Okay, we have a word many. Look at verse 14. Many were astonished. There's a crowd. There's an audience. There's onlookers. Do you see it? All right. I'm going to go ahead and get to uh, my quote from someone who doesn't get it because I don't want to lose you. We got more to see here. Okay? But take a breath. Sit up in your seat. Okay? Let me read something for you. Any God, this is a quote, any God who would will the unspeakable suffering and death of an innocent Jesus on the cross is a monster God. Who could believe in such a God? The God we Christians are called to believe in is a God of deep love and compassion, a God of forgiveness and kindness and endless caring. That is the Reverend Dr. Jeffrey Franz. The Reverend Dr who calls himself a Christian and yet denies the suffering of the Messiah, saying that we have simply read that into the text. If you deny the suffering of the Messiah, you deny penal substitutionary atonement, meaning that someone has taken your penalty in your place. And there is no one who could take our penalty other than the Son of God himself. Because he had to be man to take on man's punishment, but he had to be God in order to withstand that punishment. So he must have been man, he must have been God, and it was the Messiah, and it is the servant depicted in Isaiah 52. But before he came, some 700 years before he came, this is just the, as much the word of God as the book of Romans is, you understand that. And this has just as much to tell us about our Messiah, our Savior, as the book of Romans does. But sometimes all we do when we get to texts like this is we read what we already know and we think this has nothing to offer us. Not true. So we must see. We must look, even though it comes with its challenges. Okay? All right, back to the text. Just wanted to give you a bit of encouragement. 
halfway through or so? I don't really know the answer to that. I don't know if we're halfway through or not. Maybe we're almost at the end. I don't know. Let's wait and see. So the, the many were astonished. They were onlookers. Okay? So there's, there's people looking at this situation. Who are they? Did they know at this point? Many were astonished at you. Astonished. That word astonished is interesting. It, it actually is most often translated desolation or to make desolate or to lay waste of something. It's used in war imagery. But if we understand what it might mean applied to a person, then it might mean the feeling, that's the feeling of desolation that someone has, which makes them feel appalled or astonished, right? So desolation occurs, and you experience it, and how does that make you feel? Astonished or appalled, okay? So that's, that's what they see, and what has made them feel this way? It says his appearance. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form was beyond that of the children of mankind. So that we know now that this was a person who was supposed to look like a child of mankind, right? We can infer that. So this is supposed to look like a child of God, but, or a child of man, but it doesn't. It looks like something else, and so that is what has made them appalled. They were astonished because he was disfigured marred beyond human semblance that is outside the form of a human being is what it says and many people will look on this servant and they will be appalled because he has been disfigured before their eyes what a scene and then it says okay good news so shall he sprinkle many nations now your bible potentially may say something like startle or it might say uh, uh, something similar to that. I think ESV actually even has a footnote right there uh, where it says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. It might say startle. Uh, disregard that. that it's, that's not true. That's, they, they took that from, so there are some people, uh, never mind. If you want to know about that, it, it has to do with the languages. So if you want to know about that, just ask me afterwards, okay? We won't get into that. I'll spare you that, okay? There's a reason. Uh, so, what is actually being said here? Uh, we're going to take a short time to look at this word sprinkle, which is in the Hebrew. Um, in every version of the Hebrew that there is, this word does not change. Okay, it's there. It's the word sprinkle, and it's not a one-time use word. It's used in other portions of Scripture, primarily in Leviticus and Numbers. And what is there a lot of in Leviticus and Numbers? Sprinkling of what? blood, actually of water and oil as well, but always a liquid, primarily blood is being sprinkled, okay? We're going to look at one particular text, and uh, it will give us some significant insight into this particular passage in Isaiah. So just look at it with me for just a second, which is uh, Leviticus chapter 5, okay? Leviticus chapter 5, it will not be on the screen, so if you want to look at it, you'll have to turn there. Leviticus, Leviticus, Excuse me, Leviticus 5, beginning in verse 5. I'm going to go ahead and read it. This was the laws for sin offerings. The laws for sin offerings. 
when he realizes the guilt in any of these and he confesses the sin that he has committed. So this is a person in Israel who has sinned and admits that they've sinned and they need to do something about that sin. Here are the laws for the sin offerings. He shall bring to the Lord his compensation for the sin. We're going to be talking about that particular word compensation next week because it's also found in Isaiah 53. The Lord and his compensation for that sin that he has committed. A female from the flock, a lamb, a goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him. But if he cannot afford a lamb, he shall bring to the Lord his compensation for the sin that he has committed two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a sin offering, the other for a burnt offering. He will bring them to the priest, so shall he offer the first one for the sin offering. And listen to what they do to this sin offering. They'll wring its head from its neck, but they're not going to sever the head completely. Does that sound pretty disgusting? Like the offering has been disfigured? and shall sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar. So you take the sin offering, which is your compensation for sin, for guilt, and you disfigure it, and it's bleeding. It doesn't even look like it's supposed to anymore. And you take some of that blood, and you sprinkle the blood. What does that accomplish? It says, while the rest of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar, it is a sin offering. He shall offer the second for a burnt offering according to the rule, and the priest shall make atonement for him and the sin that he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. So what does all this accomplish? The forgiveness of sin, so it says, right? So you need, if you've committed sins, the law was you need a sin offering. What do you do with that sin offering? You disfigure it, it's bleeding, you take the blood, and you sprint. This is a gross image, isn't it, by the way? It's okay to admit that. Yeah, you're right, it was. And you sprinkle the blood, and by the sprinkling of the blood, atonement is brought, and forgiveness for sin is ushered in. So, what does it say in our text? That this servant is going to be disfigured, marred beyond human semblance, and go over just for a minute to uh, the book of Hebrews now. So what we've read, go to Hebrews 10, and what we've read is that the sprinkling of the blood of the sacrifice makes atonement for the sinner, and he's forgiven of his sin. That's the law for sin offering. And so, as you're turning there, what we can already see is that there's a servant who's going to serve as a sin offering. It's pretty plain. This word sprinkle makes it very plain to the readers and to those who understood the law and sin offerings. You disfigure something, it's bleeding, you sprinkle its blood, and it brings about atonement. Okay? But he's going to atone for many nations. He's going to sprinkle many nations. That's exciting. So in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, let's just look at it for a few verses here. For since the law is but a shadow of the good things to come, so I'll stop right there. The laws that we're already seeing, which includes sin offerings, because he's about to mention that, the laws that we see ever by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw, year, who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered. Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. 
So what he's saying is, in this day of atonement, you would have to, the author of Hebrews is that, listen, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away your sins. You need something better. This was just simply a shadow of the perfect things that were to come. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings, that's what we just read about, laws for sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. And then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, the first system, in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That, that's kind of a climax of what he's, he's been saying. But we have to continue, because when you see it, we, we have to get there. When you see it, you'll know. And every priest stands daily in his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. He's already said that once. But when Christ came, he offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. That is the most, that is the most quoted verse in the Old Testament, is that what we just read right there. That's Psalm 110, verse 1. That is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. So it says, and the Holy Spirit says, bearing witness, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, write them on their minds, and I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That wasn't for them, but it is for us. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Whew, that was a mouthful, but what all did he just say? Before, God required these sin offerings regularly, but he never delighted in them. He never took pleasure in them in the sense that they were enough. Never could that be enough. If it could be enough, we would keep doing it. We wouldn't have needed Jesus. But it wasn't ever good enough. But then it says Jesus came as the fulfillment of these things, and he put away that whole system. And he says, and that's why uh, offerings are no longer offered. Why would you make an offering for sin if Jesus is your offering for sin? So if ever anything comes about that says we need to make a sacrifice for sins, no, 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 no. We don't do that. We have a sacrifice for sins. We have the perfect sacrifice. It was Jesus. We don't need any more. But this, this also goes actually to the Catholic Mass. Do you know that every time they take the Eucharist, which is not the same thing as what we call the Lord's Supper, although it has similarities, but do you know that they put the Lord Jesus to death every time they do that? It is a bloody memorial. It is a bloody sacrifice is what they reference, reference that as. There is a constant sacrifice of Jesus, and they celebrate it. And that's actually what the word Eucharist, Eucharisteo means, to rejoice and celebrate. So they celebrate the sacrifice. Too many, too many trails here, okay? You want to know about that? Ask me later. We'll talk about it. I'm keeping on track. Where is she? Sherry, I'm keeping on track. Okay, here we go. We have to get there. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by what? By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, we have a great high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near. Let us draw near. How? With a true heart, with full assurance. Here it is. And with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. 
Who is it that receives the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ on their conscience, on their hearts? It is those who have the blood of Jesus Christ credited to their account. And how does that happen? By faith in his work. It is absolutely 100% for certain that this is what is being said in our text this morning. So let's just go back to it, and we're going to close out here in just a minute. It says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. We understand that now through the writings of the New Testament as they bring that into an understanding for us because this is no longer clothed in this mystery, right, in this shadow. But we understand these things now. They become clear. But you know what? They're still not perfectly clear. For now we see in part and through a mirror dimly, but then one day fully right? And we shall be fully known in that day. That's exciting. But we see it, and we see that Jesus Christ has done these things for us. He is the servant who sprinkled many nations. Same word as Gentiles there for that word nations, by the way. The Gentiles, the nations. So it says, kings shall set their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told of them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. What does that have to do with anything? Uh, just, just two things here. What this is referencing now is that this marred and disfigured servant who was disfigured and his blood was shed and sprinkled over many nations, now all of a sudden they see him in a different light. They don't say, yeah, well, I mean, the, he deserved that. But no, they're astonished, they're amazed, and the kings even shut their mouths because they have nothing to say. How could that be? The kings are the ones that are high and lifted up. But now what they have recognized is there is another who has been lifted up higher than them. There is one who has been exalted. And it is through this suffering that he was exalted. And so even the kings then shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they had not heard they understand. We'll end this way because Paul quotes this verse. Do you know that? In Romans 15, verse 20 and 21, Paul quotes Isaiah 52, 15. So aren't you interested to know? Well, having said all of that, how did Paul understand all of this, this whole situation? Because if Paul understood it that way, do you think we should understand it that way? I hope your answer is yes. If Paul understood it that way, we should understood it, understand it that way. For Isaiah's audience, who is this servant? What would he do? How would he shut the mouths of kings? How would people understand these things that they otherwise had not understood? How is this new information to them? How does all this make sense? Well, it's, it's brought together by Paul, Romans 15, verse 20 and 21, and it says, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. That's the subject of what's happening here. This, this is what he's doing, preaching the gospel. Not where Christ has already been named lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have not been told of him will see, those who have never heard will understand. And you might say, but that's not a quote. That sounds very different. Actually, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it is a word-for-word -word exact quote from the version that Paul would have been reading and understood uh, most commonly. Okay, It is an exact 100% quotation. How did he apply that? Those people who had not been told and had not understood and had not seen, 
It is the people who come to see clearly that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, and that they see that there is good news in him. This is how Paul understood that, that when the gospel is proclaimed, those people who once did not understand now understand. And it will be for all people everywhere, all nations. <clears throat> I hope you see how significant this text is for us and how if we were to say that this is not talking about Jesus, this is, this is not about something that God would accomplish because you know where we're headed, right? You know what it says in Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. That's what's coming in Isaiah 53 and it's the same servant being spoken of here. Who is this mysterious figure. Well, it is Jesus Christ, our Savior. I hope that in reading this text this morning, it has brought to light for you the work of Jesus Christ. It has helped you understand, even from their perspective, that we had been anticipating a suffering servant, one who would come, who would be disfigured, that he would be broken by the hands of men. Was that true of Jesus Christ? And that he would bleed. Did he bleed? And his blood would sprinkle, that is, make atonement for many nations. Has Jesus Christ done that? Yes. And so we come to understand these realities today. But this was 700 years before Jesus Christ came. Okay? That's pretty significant, isn't it? But the things said here are going to unfold even further as we look throughout chapter 53. Now, that all being said, was today a little different? I know that it was. It's okay. But was this our text for today? Should I have read something else into the text and made it about you? Would you have liked that better? We're going to read the text and we're going to say what it says. This text was all about our God and the servant that he would send. Now, who has the great benefits and the righteousness of that great servant applied to them? Us. But the text was not about you right? How many applications and implications can you make from this text today? Many, because it is the heart of the gospel message. And it is not something simply that some men made up during the time of the Reformation or Augustine or even the New Testament writers. Not true. It has been anticipated by God. This was plan A. Does God have a plan B? There is no plan B. This has always been God's plan A. And we are thrilled to be able to look into this great mystery with clarity together. All right, let's pray together.